and welcome to the Christian Formation Podcast. I'm Raven, and I'm here with Andrew, one of our pastors at Providence Church. The goal of this podcast is to form disciples to live all of life with the presence of God. And we do this through conversations about theology, culture, and stories. Today, we're discussing the book of Mark. Hey, hey. It's so weird not starting the same way. Yeah, you do always start the same way. I say. The same pitch too, I think. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's just routine now. I don't even remember what I say. I think I say, say hey, welcome back. Or no, hey everyone, welcome back. Yeah, or something like that. I was trying to mix so it I'm up. I'm telling you what it is. I hear it every time. I know, hey everyone. That's hilarious. How often do you feel like you memorize things that you hear over and over again? Like unknowingly, like yeah. I just pick it up. Well, probably all the time. You think? Yeah. I feel like jingles and stuff are easier, but than words. Yeah. Or what do you mean? Yeah, like you hear "Renewal by Anderson." You know that? Like, well, yeah. Everyone's yeah. singing the ending right now. What's like an example of like a phrase or words that you memorize? Um. Okay. Well, at church, you normally say, "Give us sharp minds and soft hearts." So I have that memorized, but it's not no. like a full phrase. Well, no, I guess it is it a is. phrase. Yeah, that is. Not, yeah, I think that stuff happens all the time. Where people just You just remember. pick that stuff up, as long as it's over and over again. Yeah, it's funny though, because you think about little kids, they're like sponges, so they'll absorb things that might not be said over and over again. Don't our brains, as we get older, doesn't it become harder to memorize stuff? Or yeah, not? yeah, it basically starts to decline. It, like, the ability to learn languages <laughs> at a young age starts to decline as you get older. Is it more than language, though? I feel like language is the best I mean, they have to learn everything. Oh, yeah. People have said, too, that you just have so much inside your brain that it's hard to remember everything because it's like sensory overload. I feel So I think as we're older, we just have so much information and our brain has to start discarding some of it. But don't we not use all of our brain capacity that we could? I mean, that's what I've heard. And I don't know how to tap into those unused reservoirs. You got to try it. I know. That'd be kind of interesting. Find a practice on how to unlock. I've heard the like, what is it? Use like 10% of your brain or something yeah, or its capacity know. or ability. You got to start using more. Yeah, but what if I try to use more and I just unlock all these memories that I don't want, you know? That probably seems healthy, <laughs> honestly. Terrible. So you probably oh should do Lord. that too. That's hilarious. I didn't even, yeah, didn't even think about that. Wow. You'd probably try something like that. Do like a little experiment. To unlock to see. memories? Yeah. No, to unlock yeah, parts of your brain that, that you see. Look. But to unlock well, parts of your brain. Who wants to brain. unlock memories that your brain has shut off? I don't you should, know. but I don't want to. Yeah. It is funny, though, that someone could mention something or say something and you could be like, oh, yeah, I remember that. When if they had asked you a different type of question, you wouldn't have remembered. But just yeah, by hearing other little, people's yeah. stories, it elicits those memories that you might not otherwise. Well, and that's true, too, for like places and smells and like all of your senses things can like trigger because your brain connects those things yeah it's wild wild. so cool man god is just so fun with the way that he's designed us and the way that he's designed the gospel of mark so cool not as good as your transition last week but decent i'm literally never doing one again oh my goodness that's just gonna be your claim to fame yeah stop your head Well, today we are diving into the book of Mark. And as we said on the last episode, we're heading through the New Testament book by book. One, because we have more time. There are less books in the New Testament. And two, because people are more familiar with the New Testament. And this is a way that you can really dive in and get specific and have a better framework for how you read so that when you're reading, you can understand more of the story of God. 
True. Do you want to add anything? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that was a good summary. No, I don't really have anything on that. So today we're diving into Mark, which is the second of the four Gospels. But interestingly enough, it was written the earliest. Okay, so here's a question, though. Why do we need four Gospels? Like, why doesn't just one of their stories become the story? Like, why do you have to have multiple accounts? I mean, I'm just spitballing here, but if the Gospels the most important message, shouldn't we have four chapters that prove that Jesus is the Messiah and he's the one? Like, if you don't, how important really is that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. Yeah, we should have multiple accounts. And I also think that multiple accounts means multiple witnesses, which increases the validity of a story. But why wouldn't we have that for other stories in the Bible or in the Old Testament? Like there's some pivotal stories. I mean, I guess we kind of do with Kings and Chronicles. It's mostly the same stories. Yeah. I just kind of go back Jesus to is the more thought important? that. Oh, yeah, for sure. But also with people that have eyewitness accounts and people that had been living and waiting for the day that a Messiah would return, they would need a lot of convincing because they probably wouldn't quite understand it. I don't know why they don't need quite as much convincing in the Old Testament. Yeah, it is interesting because Matthew, Mark, and Luke are also all very similar and have very similar stories and broadly a similar structure. They're all a little bit unique, which we'll talk about. But then you have John, which is very different, which almost to me feels like that makes sense. You know, you have, if you had Mark and then you had John, it's kind of like, yeah, they're doing two very different things, structured different ways, and a lot of the content's different. That's probably helpful. It's kind of like any biography. Yeah. If you have one main biography on a person and someone says, oh, you kind of missed this piece of their life or this angle of what really drove them. So I'm going to write a biography and hit that. You're not contradicting the other one, right. but you are showing something different. That makes sense. But I think it's a little bit more confusing to think these three, which do have separate aims. We talked about Matthews. We'll get into Mark's in the next few weeks. We'll hit the other ones. But it does feel a little bit interesting that a majority of the content is very similar. Mm -hmm. Some literally the exact same. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think I was reading and it says that Mark was written first and then you have the other books. But because of that, 90% of Mark appears in Matthew and somewhere around 50% of Mark appears in Luke. And that's interesting, but that's where I think the audience matters because they have the same or similar purposes and yet the audience is different. So it's going to be explained differently. Two quick thoughts on that. One, I do think it's interesting to note that Mark, you mentioned it earlier, was the one that is most likely written first. So this is the earliest account. And a lot of people actually think, or it's pretty much across the board given that Matthew and Luke took Mark's gospel, took a lot of the stories, and then kind of built onto it, which is just interesting thinking, you know, if Matthew and Luke, they they have this gospel account that's been written And they're taking that story and just kind of adding to it, which gets to the second thing of what you said, that I do think it's important to remember that every book of the Bible isn't just generically written and it isn't just written in a vacuum. There is a purpose and a context to that author writing that book. Like it's all with a theological purpose. Each of the books, there's nothing that's just generically given. It is all specific authors with a specific purpose writing the way that they're writing for a reason, Mm -hmm. which I think is pretty helpful for us to remember. And I'm sure we'll come back to that 
quite a bit throughout the season. Yes. Yeah. Because, well, let's just get into that a little bit. In Matthew, it's primarily written to fellow Jews, but in Mark, it appears to be targeted to Roman believers or particularly Gentiles. And we can tell that just by the way that it's written, what information is included, what's not included, and just the language that he uses as well. Which one interesting note on Mark's gospel, most people believe that Mark has compiled a lot of Peter's stories and accounts of the life of Jesus, and he's basically writing that. So we have the gospel according to Mark, which is him most likely writing it, but really this is in some ways Peter's account probably of the life and story of Jesus, Uh, which again, speaking to Romans, Again, not in the Bible specifically, but most people believe Peter was in the church in Rome and helped plant that church or pastor at that church, which again would make sense then that the aim is kind of this story of the Messiah given to Gentile or Romans specifically, which is where some of that stuff comes of why people think it's written to that context. That's interesting. And I feel like that's helpful because then when you see Mark's explanation of Jewish customs and talking about different expressions, then you start to realize, oh, that's why he's like explaining them to the people because they're not Jewish. And that gives you a better understanding of why he's doing that. Whereas in Matthew, he doesn't really explain those and he's talking over and over again about the Old Testament and how Jesus fulfills it. So it is, yeah, it's just interesting how you see that. Which, to be fair, Mark does do some, but kind of like we said, Matthew just expands as his primary purpose. So quickly, just for instance, Mark's introduction to his gospel is really Mark 1, 1 through 15. And most of that is actually Mark showing that these stories and things of the Old Testament are now being fulfilled, not just through Israel, but through the true Israel, which is Jesus And that whole introduction ends with him saying, the kingdom of God is now here, so repent and believe. So the whole thing does point us to Jesus is the fulfillment of all these Old Testament things. Matthew just expands on that and makes that like one of the main purposes of his book, where it doesn't so much for Mark, which again is helpful for us to remember that all the gospels are doing a lot of these things, but each one has a specific way or primary purpose of what they're doing totally while they still probably include some of the other elements right so then if one of his purposes is to show that jesus is the messiah or the lord and savior what would be his secondary or tertiary or what would be the other purpose that you had mentioned to be honest i don't totally know and i'm sure there's a lot of commentators that have a bunch of different viewpoints one of the things that i think is clear about what mark is specifically doing is showing us that Jesus, this man, because again, we have to remember everyone in this time period, especially since Mark's the earliest, the people that he's writing to, they know about this man, Jesus. What the authors are doing are not trying to convince you that a man, Jesus was real. They're trying to convince you of the identity of this man, Jesus. So Matthew's talking about how he's the long-awaited Messiah, this king over the kingdom of heaven. Mark seems to be pointing a little bit more to the idea that He is the son of God. That's mentioned a few times, even in the very beginning, Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So he's telling you 
that's important, this like eternal divine nature. And some of the controversial texts in Mark center around his divinity and who he is. But Mark also really wants you to know that he is a real human. There's a number of times where we see his humanity displayed and elements of a human nature. But also on top of that, I think what Mark is also trying to do, and this I got from a, an article that we both read by a guy named, I think it's Mark Strauss, I'm guessing is his how you say his last name. But he says, in many respects, the whole gospel, which is Mark's gospel he's talking about, is a call to faith in the face of trials and suffering, which I think is very evident because you see how the Son of God, the eternal Son of God has come down And he also highlights a lot of Jesus's suffering, hardships, temptation in the wilderness. Obviously, the pinnacle of his suffering is the garden and then the crucifixion scene. And I think that's important because if you remember Peter's letters, which we'll probably get to in a few months, they're both heavily influenced by suffering Christians and Peter giving hope to them. And if that's true, that this is Peter's account given to Mark that he's now writing down for the early Christians that are facing persecution and suffering for their faith in Jesus. I think Mark is trying to help us see not only that Jesus is God who has come to be with us, but that he has put on flesh. He himself suffered and that following him, I mean, a couple pivotal pieces of Mark is Jesus saying that we need to follow, pick up our cross and also walk in this way of Jesus, which is laying our life down, suffering, and hoping and enduring through the midst of it. And so I do think that's an aim of what Mark is doing. And again, that's probably just a very pastoral thing. So if you think about, you know, people in your life, but whether it be Christians or non-Christians, and you know what they're going through, and you want to figure out how do I preach the good news of Jesus into that, you're going to contextualize that a little bit and try to find, here's the unique aim of how this life and this identity of Jesus is good news in the midst of that. Mm. I think that's probably what Mark is doing. There's probably a lot of fear, a lot of questions, a lot of hurt and pain. And I think he wants to show that Jesus endured that, went through that. That's not going to be foreign for us, but the call is to remain faithful and have faith in Jesus to be with us, even in the midst of those moments. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. And, that kind of makes sense of the strange ending where in the earliest manuscripts, Mark ends after the angels appear and it says that the witnesses were struck with fear and awe and it just ends. There's nothing more. And it goes along with kind of what you have just said of Mark's whole gospel, including the empty tomb is just this call to faith in the midst of suffering and trials rather than being fearful. But that could make sense a little bit of the abrupt ending. We've mentioned before that these books have different structures to help you really understand them and point to greater truths about Christ and about God's story. What's the overall structure that you would encourage people to use while thinking through and reading Mark? So the highest level structure that you can probably go to is, I found one on the Bible Project kind of outlines it like this, which is pretty close to how most people find the structure. But the way they say it is, Chapters one through eight, geographically, you're in the area of Galilee. And the question really is, who is this Jesus, this figure now that's a religious guy on the scene, which again, like I said before, that kind of hits the 
divinity of Jesus, that he's the son of God, he's divine, but he's also human. You're going to see that a lot play out in those first few chapters. And the question really is, who is this man? That actually appears a couple times, that phrase. Then in chapters eight-ish to 10, and again, all these are broad, so it's not exactly like eight one to the end of 10, but broadly from eight to 10, it's the disciples starting to wrestle with that. So you had this time in Galilee where he's doing all this ministry and people are wondering, eight to 10 is now this road to Jerusalem where the disciples are starting to figure out what does it mean that he's the Messiah? What does it mean that he's the son of God who's now human? What is he actually doing? And then from the end of that, so basically 11 through the end of the book is about how this Messiah is actually going to become king. So you have all the misconceptions of what this Messiah is going to do. And Jesus is very clear in Jerusalem that he has come not for political or earthly power, but to lay that down and to suffer and to die for his people. And so those are kind of the main themes. You could also think about that geographically. So you have the time in Galilee, who is Jesus? You have this road to Jerusalem with the disciples starting to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And then you have more broadly him communicating in Jerusalem for this final moments of his life that he as the Messiah has come to suffer and die. Yeah, which is helpful just to have kind of a framework for, okay, this is how it's broken up. But within each of those sections, do you have any questions or thoughts that people should be asking themselves as they're reading through those sections? So part of the main questions I think you should ask is kind of the headings of that. So if you look at one through eight, asking who is Jesus and notice all the stories with that question in mind, what is Jesus doing and what is this saying about his identity? And you'll notice both those elements of this divine nature that he's forgiving sins, that he's calming the storm, that he's like overall of creation. And you'll notice a lot of human elements to that as well. And so trying to figure out, wait, who is this Messiah figure? Then as you get into eight and 10, it's really beginning to wrestle with what do I believe about this Messiah? So that's what the disciples are having to ask themselves. Are they going to be willing to follow whatever Jesus is? And I think that section is good because you see things like the transfiguration and all of his glory and divine nature, but he begins to tell them, but that's going to come after suffering and death, which then gets you into the last section, which really does get to the point of Mark, which is, if Jesus came to suffer and die so that he would be the true king, am I willing to follow that king? And am I willing to see him as exalted through his suffering? So in all the different sections, for example, you'll find moments where he is quote unquote exalted, um, either through calming the waves, through the transfiguration, or even through the cross. It's like this odd paradoxical scene where he's exalted, but the exalting or like him being enthroned, he's got the crown of thorns, he's got a purple robe, he's lifted high. All that stuff is actually like king type language. But what's ironic is it's a crown of thorns. It's a robe that's mocking him. It's the sign that says king of the Jews, where they're making fun of him, where he's lifted high on a cross to die. But then at the end of Mark, you have this Roman centurion who says, truly, this is the son of God. So you get this king divine proclamation from a Roman guard. So it's just all of this irony and paradox showing us he is the true king, 
but it's happening in a different way. And then, like you mentioned, even at the resurrection scene, the main part of that resurrection scene ends, and what most people think is the actual end of the book, with these women seeing it, and then it says they run away and they're afraid, and Mark ends it there because it's leaving us with the question, okay, you see Jesus as powerful, you see him as glorious, you see him as the son of God and human, you see him coming to be with us, he's exalted through the cross, suffering and death, are you going to follow him? Which, think about again, the earliest readers are being persecuted and killed. For a lot of these Christians, there's not many of them, so if Christians are actually killed, you probably know those people. So you know these brothers and sisters that are dying for the faith, you feel that, And Mark is telling you, this is the way of the gospel. And if you want to follow him, that's the king you follow. You don't follow the one who's just looking for earthly power and control and fame. You follow the Messiah who came to lay his life down and calls you to do that. And the question Mark leaves you with is, are you willing to have faith in the midst of that? That's cool, which is fun because, well, I don't know if it's fun, but then that's the question (laughs) that you can apply to your own life and ask as you finish the book of Mark. Would you say, is there anything else that you would advise people to, as they're reading the book of Mark, to think more practically or how that might apply into their lives? I think the book of Mark is really helpful because we can sit back at the end of it and ask ourselves, do we believe that Jesus is who he says he is? But further than that, will we put our entire faith, trust, hope in him? And so practically, I think what would be fun or interesting or cool to have the Holy Spirit reveal to you as you're reading is to ask those questions of, okay, in what areas am I not trusting Christ to be my all and my hope? Or in those times of fear and despair, how often am I quick to run to him rather than run away from him? And so just those questions of asking yourself Where am I not putting my hope and trust and faith in him? Or maybe asking yourself for the first time, am I even putting my hope, faith, or trust in him? Or is my life not surrendered to him at all? Like those are just really big weighty questions. But I think practically it's good for all of us to ask ourselves in various seasons or if you're not a believer in Christ and you start to realize, dang, like I haven't actually hoped in the true Messiah and I want to start doing that. That's just a really good thing for us all to wrestle with and contemplate. Thank you for joining us today. The goal of the Christian Formation Podcast is to live all of life with the presence of God. And we do this through conversations about theology, culture, and stories. Please like this, rate it, review it, share it so that it can get out to more people. If you have any questions, email us at formation at providenceomaha.org. We'll see you next week.